0: Hello, everyone. This is John. Uh, Before you listen to this episode, I wanted to let you know that while this is a relatively lighthearted conversation, considering that the subject matter is horror fiction, we do touch on the very real subject of suicide during our discussion of one of the stories. And if that sounds like the kind of thing you'd rather avoid, I wanted to let you know up top so that you could make an informed listening decision. Otherwise, enjoy the show. Hey, folks, I'm John Walker, and this is Skirt. Uh, brand new podcast on the Fyiz podcast feed. Uh, we'll be running weekly episodes between now and the end of the month, mostly focused on horror fiction, this being October, the, the spookiest of months. And I'm just super excited for you to hear what's in store. To that end, let me say how honored I am to have Nathan Ballengrud be my first guest on the show. His critically acclaimed short story collection, North American Lake Monsters, was released in 2013, and he followed that up in 2019 with Wounds, Six Stories from the Border of hell they're both great and they're different from each other but the through line is is nathan's uh, lyrical prose style so you should buy them someplace that sells a lot of lyrically prosaic things like your local independent bookstore. I should also tell you one of the stories from Wounds called The Visible Filth was adapted into the film Wounds, if that's not a little confusing, in 2019. And as of October 2nd, Hulu drops all eight episodes of a new show called Monsterland with stories, sometimes loosely and sometimes directly, based on the stories in North American Lake Monsters. So why are all these people adapting this guy's stuff? Listen up and find out. This is Nathan Ballingrad. Well, how are you? I'm okay. I'm
1: okay. Staying busy. How about yourself?
0: Not not too different. I mean, I think this has been a really crazy time, and I, I, I won't be glib about it, but I have, you know, my wife's been able to telework throughout this whole year, pretty much, and my son is here, and, and I work from home, so it's like notwithstanding the horrors outside the door, I feel lucky that we've been able to hunker down and be a unit and be like, if all the animals are close and everybody in the house is close, then like right now we're, we're safe.
1: I'm the same way with you. you know, my daughter's home. Uh, I'm, able to, I'm able to weather this so far. And uh, yeah, I feel like my, my cub is in the cave and that's all I can really hope to control right now.
0: Um, so what have you been doing? I mean, I know that you've been obviously this new show, Monsterland is getting ready to come out. Have you seen the the show yet? Have you seen all the episodes of of season one?
1: no i've seen uh, I've
0: seen dailies of various episodes, but I have not seen any finished episodes I, I mean, I there's so much I want to get to with you, but I think leading off with this idea of being adapted and what that's like to sort of hand the keys over to somebody
2: mm-hmm.
0: I did Follow a couple of other interviews with you, uh, where you discussed something about uh, w- when the movie "Wounds" was made from your story, the the visible filth that you you had a bit of a close relationship with the director Babak Anvari yes. uh, as as the screenplay was being written, but that also it was it was it was implicit that you were you know that was a gift he was giving you in a sense that you were not trying to control. What that adaptation was, and you're not that interested in controlling the adaptation of your work, are you?
1: Well, first, yes, it was. He was. He was. It was an act of generosity on his part to involve me uh, to the extent that he did. You know, no filmmaker has to do that at all. That was a kindness uh, from them, and uh, and and yeah, I, I don't have any interest in in trying to influence someone's uh, someone's depiction of uh, of my story. I, I strongly believe that uh, that it's a different piece of art you know it's a different expression of something I'm, I'm one of these folks who believe that once you write something and release it you know it's not really yours anymore i know that's something people say a lot but uh, but I, I mean i truly believe it i do my work and the writer does you know their own work and then they put it out and then it becomes a collaboration with whoever receives it you know uh, a reader will bring their own psychological apparatus to it, and they'll and they'll interpret what's on the page in their own particular way. And so, the version of the story that you read versus the version of the story that someone you know someone else reads is going to be uh, is going to be different. In that sense, I think every experience with a story uh, is a variation on a theme. And so, when a director or a s- scriptwriter comes and uh, and and does their treatment. It is a further variation on a theme and it would be an act of hubris and unforgivable ego to try to influence that after I've long released it, you know, into the world.
0: Well, it does appear to have been a pretty open-ended adaptation process because of the eight episodes of Monsterland's first season, only three of them are direct adaptations of stories that appear in North American lake monsters. The, the other five episodes either take some kernel from one of those stories and then spin it off into some new direction, or they come from someplace new entirely. Uh, but what they all do, or it, what they all attempt to do, is to adhere to the tone that you established in that collection. And that tone could be described as normal people, often at the end of their rope, often rather hopeless characters uh, who come into contact with the supernatural in such a way that affects them. And and you, the reader, may end these stories thinking, I don't know what's worse, the, the horror elements, the scary stuff, or uh, the things that normal people do often to each other uh, to get by every day. I guess I'm curious about how you arrived at that tone, like that that batch of thematically linked material but also how much of a deliberate gear shift was it when you uh put out your next collection wounds six stories from the border of hell and all the stories in that are are decidedly more fantastical uh do you have a sense when you're writing the stories that it belongs in one pile or another oh these are more grounded these are more fantastical etc i don't
1: necessarily think about that with every story but i tend to think of that um in a sort of larger directional sense, um, if that makes any sense. Yeah. Uh, with the stories in the first book, I was—I very much wanted to, to tell stories that operated by the rules of what we call mainstream fiction, like modern realist fiction, but using supernatural elements as kind of like a means of illumination. I was intrigued with the idea for some of those stories of writing about characters who would typically be a walk-on character in a, in a typical, in a traditional genre story, you know, like, uh, in this, in you go where it takes you, uh, instead of following the character who's changing skins and is, and is at the heart of the mystery, I was more interested in what happens with somebody who just brushes up against him one day. And how does that fling her life into a new direction? And, uh, with the second book, after I got done with those stories, I wanted to write, I wanted to lean more heavily into the, into the fantasy, uh, for a couple of reasons, uh, one was I love that stuff. You know, I love Hammer Horror and EC Comics, and I want to honor that too. I want to, I want to, I want to uh, play in that field as well. Uh, part of it was I wanted to write a book that had more of the hooks that uh, certain readers like in horror fiction. When I gave the first book to people, this is something I, I've said a couple times. Uh, I would almost sometimes want to apologize to them. It's like this book is going to make you feel bad. It's going to make you feel sad. You know, I'm. I'm, I'm glad you want to read my stories, but I'm sorry. Uh, and uh, and I wanted, for the second one, I wanted to be able to give it to people and say, you might have some fun with this. You know, there's more of a comic book aesthetic uh, in a lot of the stories. And also I just wanted to prove to myself that I could do it. You know, I wanted to do something different. I don't want to do the same thing each time. It gets It gets creatively boring. And so I feel like with those two, I'm kind of staking out territory. Now between these stakes, I can
0: operate going forward. Now that people know, that these are the kinds of things that I that I might do. Both of the books seem to me to be pretty well-received, so it seems like you're bringing people along for the ride on the more more fied stuff. Uh, uh, but I, I don't know if there's a sense in your mind that you're playing to different fans with the different collections, or is that something you just can't think about?
1: I do think about it. I shouldn't. I don't want to, but I do. Uh, and I, the answer is I don't know. Uh, it's something I worry about. I worried a lot about it when I put the book out, the second one. I'll worry about it with the, with, the, with the next one. There's something to be said. There's a great deal to be said for, for cultivating a particular patch of land and exploring it, you know, very deeply. If I had written a second book that kind of did the same sort of work that North America Lake Monsters did, my fear is it would have shored up my identity, you know, and how people could perceive me. A
0: certain impression of you.
1: The brand, to use a despised word, you know, Uh, so that, you know, if someone sees, oh, that's, here's another book by this guy, I know what I'm going to get. I like this kind of thing. And so I'm going to go back again. Uh, Whereas... If you shift a lot, then it's like you know, no one knows what they're going to get, which can be fun for some readers and which can be frustrating. It's like, oh, I, I thought I was going to get this other thing, this new thing I don't like. Next time he's got a book out, I'm not going to be so quick to pick it up. Uh, and that's my that's my fear, you know, but uh, but I don't have any real choice in matter, I don't think. Once I finished the stories for Lake Monsters and I was working on the, the new ones, the idea of writing the same kind of thing was just, uh, it was just, it felt onerous, you know, it felt... Not only repetitive, but it felt like you know, I had wrung that part of my brain out. It was dry. It was not going to be possible to write like, again like that, at least for a while. It is something I think about and worry about, but it's something I don't feel like I have a lot of control over. Ironically, for the first book, I was just you know finding my way as a writer, finding my voice as a writer, and so the idea of unification, uh, thematic unification, wasn't really at the forefront of my mind. Maybe, maybe by the end. When I was writing the last story, the Good Husband, maybe by then it was, uh, but up until then it was just you know what's the next story? What's the next story? And it wasn't in the, in the beginning of the second one either. And the second one, my after I wrote a couple stories for it, and I thought this was not going to have a theme because I wrote the, the Diabolist and I wrote the Atlas of Hell. And I was like, well, these stories are extremely different. And then I was trying. I think Skull Pocket came next, or maybe it was the Visible Filth. I can't remember. They're all they're probably overlapped. I was like, none of these stories have anything to do with each other. Uh, and so this this next book is going to be a bunch of unrelated, thematically unlinked uh, pieces. And it wasn't until deeper into the process that I realized there was a link. I just didn't apprehend it, you know, until I had a few pieces to look at. And then it became just kind of fun, just dropping in a couple thematic links uh, just to kind of shore that up. Like uh, in the story of the Maw, I had a I mentioned the Black Iron Monks. They served no purpose there except to Except that it is hell, you know, vomiting up onto Earth. And so I just liked putting that echo in. The only two stories that were intentionally uh, meant to link up to each other, at least at the stage of conception, was uh, The Atlas of Hell and uh, The Butcher's Table. The rest was just kind of like having fun, just, uh,
0: just echoing themes. Well, for one thing, I just love The Butcher's Table as a story. It's such a great, <laughs> doomed, swashbuckling adventure with, with some truly awful things happening in it and some some great imagery. Um, we could spend an entire episode just talking about it. But it really does, at the end of that collection, of uh, at the end of Wounds, it unifies stories that are otherwise disparate. To the point where it almost makes you feel like you were just reading a novel, even though it's not quite that uh, much of a through line, but it does have a sense of completeness at the end. And I would even say North American Lake Monsters gives you that sense of completeness that when I put it down, I felt less like I had seen a grab bag of ideas. And... And more like I had been taken from a point A to a point B, like it was a very specific uh, collection of stories. And I think the last story in it, the Good Husband, really fosters that idea because it does seem like the culmination of the themes of the book. And it, and it did make you put it down and go, okay, yeah, I just finished something of of some substance. I'm very
1: happy to hear it. Yeah, the Good Husband was was written, you know, as as I by that time I knew it was going to be the last piece of the collection, and so I did want it to kind of hit heavily uh i wanted it to be the capstone of the book and the same thing was true with the butcher's table. actually both were written both were the last stories written and they were written with the intention of closing the book out just a just a kind of a just a kind of a revisitation and an underlining of the themes yeah it's satisfying to me to have a thematic unity you know you know it's it's, it's satisfying to have a coherent artistic expression and i presume i mean who knows but i uh, i presume that that's how i will go forward
0: with the next collection do you have any sense uh, of what tone or what ideas you might be mining next or, or are you just taking it one story at a time
1: i'm still thinking about it mostly one story at a time i i do i am seeing a kind of like a, a hint of a theme with what's already been written uh something like ghosts but who knows if that will continue but i've started writing less short stories because i'm focusing more on longer works now um, and so the next collection will be a while before it comes out, because though other longer books will come out first, which is to say that, you know, whatever the unifying theme is, I may not have discovered it yet. I might think that I have, but maybe not. Yeah. But each story, when I sit down, I generally don't think about how it's going to interlock with the others. I just think about what this story needs to be. So the next thing that's coming out is actually, it's a novel. It's already been finished. Uh, it's at the publisher. Uh, we're in that stage where we're doing, you know, edits. Tweaking things. And it's another scary thing because it's different from both books. You know, this is a, it's not a horror novel. It's a, uh, it's a novel about uh, a girl in bars in
0: 1930. Oh, wow. It's more bradbury than Barker or King. Oh, that's music to my ears, though. I love that. Well, good. I hope you're not the only one. <laughs> <laughs> well, I would imagine if someone's followed you to this point, they would be enchanted by the idea that you will try different things. I just love it when people I love that deal with genre elements and fantastical elements when they deal with them with the kind of sensitivity that you do. I love it when they stay somewhere in the neighborhood. I, I always have found it strange when someone starts out and they direct a couple of big horror movies or comedies or whatever it is and then they go on to be more respectable or they get more mainstream acclaim and they leave behind the not so much like the the horse that brought them like there's some shame in that but just like when, when someone has a handle on a genre you like you kind of hope they'll they'll stick with it for a little while i agree with
1: everything you said uh, there's a uh, you get the sense that some people sometimes are playing in genre maybe because it's convenient entry into the world they're trying to access uh you know the, the filmmaking world or the writing world what 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 have you uh and some people you know they're clearly like they're planning to set up you know make a house here this is this is where they live mm-hmm. and uh, and that's how i feel i've got probably a score of ideas knocking around in my brain waiting for me to get to them and they're all coming from the same place you know this is this is what i love this is how my heart is configured i can't not think this way and so you know, even the novel is, like I say, it's not a horror novel, but it has dark and spooky elements to it. You know, that's like, I can't not have that in there. It's it's what I love. I don't think of horror as a genre as so much as I think of it as a kind of an ingredient. Um, and it can infuse... Anything you can put it into any genre, and it will cast its own shadow over it. You know, or it it'll give it its own flavor, but it doesn't matter. You know, it doesn't doesn't matter how I think of it versus how someone else thinks of it. It's, it's it's just I mean I leave that to the academics. And so there there are elements of it in this in the story, and in the everything that I've got coming after it. It certainly has elements. I've got uh, you asked me what I'm working on. The novel is finished. It, it, Bar the editing. Uh, There's another novel which is uh, I'm working on now, which is about a man who kidnaps his son and takes him across country uh, to an imaginary place. Um, I've got an idea for a few novellas about the protagonist uh, of the Atlas of Hell, the Jack O'Leander character. I'd like to revisit
0: him a few times. And kind of like dig more into that into that world. Well, he's a good uh, a good character to follow because there's kind of a dabbler quality to him. He has that 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 aspect that a lot of weird fiction protagonists have, where they're they're sort of curious and they're they're kind of dancing around the edge of all this dark knowledge, but they they're not really masters of it.
1: Yeah, and and I think what appeals to me about him as a character is that he's a coward. Uh, He's not the uh, lantern-jawed bruiser. He's terrified of everything that's around him, of the people around him. He's at their mercy. And so when he acts out, he acts out, you know, uh, out of pure fear and self-preservation, and he's not a good person. To me, that's interesting to write about. I'm much more interested interested in writing about compromised or apparently unredeemable people yeah. than I am about them and writing about heroes. Heroes, I think, are typically boring. Mm-hmm. And that's probably another unifying theme to the work that I suspect will continue. I'm, I'm much more interested in, in brokenness than I am in heroics.
0: Well, you know, Jack Oleander might be a backstabbing coward, but he's he's a backstabbing coward in a world where that just means you're smart enough to know what you're up against. In general, I think you do a good job of paying off in your stories just how unwinnable that battle is. Once you're engaged with these with these forces, you, they'll almost always get the best of you and and right now that's making me think of Sunbleached, one of my favorite uh Tales from North American Lake Monsters, and it's a pretty straightforward vampire story. I think you even say the word vampire in like the first sentence. So there's no pussyfooting around it, but this is kind of a degraded vampire. Its its eyes have been burned out by the sun and it's hiding under a house and talking to a little kid. And uh, it's... Uh, against the backdrop of this community that's been hit by a storm and so a big part of the house has been blown off and you know nobody's doing very well and so it's it's kind of sad seeing uh this kid basically get lied to and manipulated by this by this monster but i think you play out the inevitability of it really well and there's almost no way that story could go except in a truly horrifying direction um that was an enjoyable read (laughs) as bleak as it sounds was that a was that a fun one to write Uh, Yeah, actually, it it, it, because
1: it's one of the two that deal with a traditional monster. You know, the vampire, the werewolf. Right. It was written specifically just to be a a vampire story. I was invited to an anthology to write a vampire story, and at first, this was in the the heyday of Twilight. Yeah, and so. I was not feeling vampires at the time and I I hesitated. But then I kept thinking about uh, when I was a kid and Salem's Lot and Dracula and reading actual scary vampires. And that was appealing to try to uh, tap into that energy again. Mm
2: -hmm. Uh,
1: And so, yeah, I had a good time writing it. I definitely think it's one of the bleakest stories in the book. And some of the stories I think there are, even though they might end bleakly, there are the characters themselves see, see some kind of light, even if we think that the light they see is not the one they should be running toward. <laughs> there isn't anything for anybody in, that, in the end of that, except the vampire itself. It satisfies conventional, uh, I think, genre expectations. It gives you a monster and the monster does what the monster does in the way that they're expected to do it in a general sense. The vampire acts like a vampire. Like through it, yeah, through. and it was important to me. If you present a threat, a supernatural threat, whether it's a monster or or what have you, and you give it you give it certain rules to to honor those rules all the way through. I mean, he was there's no there was no rational way I could see this kid overcoming the threat of that vampire. That that vampire knew what it was doing; it was a practiced predator, and it got what it wanted.
0: Right. In that way, the vampire is both a, a, a supernatural monster and just kind of a, a wild animal that is uh, wounded and is hiding under a house. You know, it's it's doing what it can and, and you kind of bring it into the natural world in a similar fashion, I would say, to the way that you treat the werewolf um, or the angels uh, or the lake monsters that pop up in other stories. They all feel like they're they're reinterpreted through your lens of uh of of kind of making them more grounded even in wounds the 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 references throughout that collection to hell or a place like hell or a place called hell um they seem like both A literal reference to the hell that we know and a new mythology something different it's not really clear whether this is literally hell or if this is just the name that people have Mm. for this place that they're going to or this force that they're up against but um it it allows us to kind of plug our ideas about that into it and it's as though you're kind of saying well this is like the real story of hell this is you know this is what it really is at the risk of uh
1: of drifting a little bit this is you know t- talking about hell in uh in, in and in, in wounds they never actually in the stories do we ever actually set foot on hell in hell even though it's presented as an actual place because the notion that i introduced in uh in the atlas of hell the first story is that encountering it is going to kill you you know uh just hearing it is going to damage you in in uh profound ways and so, once that was established, I felt that i you I felt that I could not pull back from that, even if the narrative would be easier in the butcher's stable because that's where they're sailing. It's like you can't actually have them go in there. You can't have them succeed. Just getting close is going to ruin.
0: I think in all stories, you spend a certain amount of time. Developing what the threat is and what the challenge is and what the characters are up against I think horror is unique in that it's almost like if someone's doing it, right? Then you're getting to the end and the hero the protagonist whatever you want to call them. They are not Winning, (laughs) you know, it's it's a weird thing to kind of want. I'm not I'm not a person who who wants things to be bleak I'm not, you know, I like pleasant things but I do go to horror to to get that punch at the end to get that sense that um, you know, whatever it is that they said was unbeatable in the first part of the story was actually, oh yeah, unbeatable. The person goes up against it, and and you know, that's that.
1: It's very important in all the stories that when you give a monster a certain set of a certain set of rules, a certain set of teeth, that you you honor them. You honor them as much as you honor uh, the emotional lives of your characters,
0: uh, and often, you know, that's going to lead to a bad end to your character. I don't know if you know the writer Sarah Reed. Yeah. Short stories can be really brief and almost like vignettes that drop you into this crazy situation, but frequently a character is going through something undefinable that you will say oh wow that they didn't seem to mind that happening to them as much as i did (laughs) (laughs) reading about it i I think that's an interesting line to walk and that seems like something you're kind of fascinated with the idea that when when it's something you can't understand that is horrifying but it's also it's like well what is the best thing for this character to do should they give in and and transform and go to some other level or should they maintain a status quo so many great stories are about someone trying to maintain a status quo and when you think about that philosophically it's a strange thing
1: i think uh i think this is a, a, a kind of a simplistic way, but I think it's still there's truth to it, of looking at how horror works. There is very much a conservative element to it, and of course I don't mean politically. Uh, I mean in a sense of maintaining the status quo, as you say. And then there's the other sort of epiphanous explosion approach. If that that's not a it's a clumsy way of saying it, but I think it's typified uh, pretty easily by comparing and contrasting Stephen King and Clive Barker. I think they both represent a different wing a different approach and uh and i think most horror most of the horror fiction that people love and hold close to their heart is of a conservative variety by which i mean uh it is a horror or the horror in the story is an intrusion from some outside realm or it's some it's some it's some creature kind of coming into the world and upsetting things. And what must be done is push back the intrusion to get back to what we want. You know, we put a stake through Dracula's heart, beat back the aliens, what have you. Uh, whereas the other approach that is typical uh, in Clive Barker's fiction, as an example, is the, the, the horror that comes is transformative. And it is, uh, it is a breaking out of a cocoon, passing from one somewhat restricted, enclosed state to something grander. And that transformation is frightening Sometimes it's painful, often it's horrifying, and it may leave everyone else in the in your old life horrified. They may never get this, but you've achieved something else. You know, you're you're a different thing, and uh, and you feel freedom in that thing. And even even if getting there drenches you in blood, and that's just the kind that I have always more viscerally responded to. It seems riskier, scarier, more interesting,
0: uh, more real. I was about to say more honest like yeah. in a strange way, because you don't know. And I've always been fascinated, but not really a believer in things. I'm sort of a skeptic, which I think is its own kind, just like a, just like a, a cynic is like a, a wounded idealist, you know? I, I think skeptics can be like disappointed dreamers. And yeah. that like, I know it, I, it's like, I haven't seen it yet. I haven't felt it yet. I haven't heard it yet, but I'm open to these things. And yet I know if I were to really encounter something, I would flip my lid. Yep. So I think when a story can tap into that feeling that makes the hair on the back of my neck stand up, sometimes it'll just be a, a line, a detail.
1: Exactly. It's often, it's often just that. It's often something incidental, uh, even in a story that will have that effect on me too. It's, and I, I feel uh, similar to you. I've often hoped to see something, I want to see something, don't. But then surprising things will, uh, will just, like, kick open that, that portal in your head. I used to work at, the, at a restaurant at the Biltmore Estate here in Asheville. And there was a, a time a few years ago when they, we had a parking lot. We get out late at night. The parking lot was well lit. And uh, they were renovating it. So we were, had to park in this grassy field, you know, uh, several hundred feet further uh, along. There were no lights out there. So you come out at 11 o'clock at night and, and you realize how used to ambient light we are in this world and how profound darkness really is when you encounter it. I was not... I mean i was just like i say a few hundred yards away from from a well-lit area and uh i crossed out of that into this grassy field through this uh you know this farm area and and the darkness felt like a weight it was legitimately scary um and i just walked in there i could see the appalachian mountains these these big black hunched shapes against the uh, sky and you get this sudden insight into how how life must have felt when there wasn't light everywhere, when darkness was something that was alive with muscle and teeth. And I was walking by this uh, gated area where the goats were kept. And they were out and they were just walking. Were, they were just sitting still, you know, staring at me. And I was just waiting for one of them to stand up on his hind legs and start talking. Would you like to live deliciously, Nathan? <laughs>
0: Yeah, it was scary. We stayed at a cabin in Maine. It was so dark out where we were that I went out one night with my son very pointedly. I was like, well, let's get our flashlights and let's walk out and then let's get somewhere and let's turn our flashlights off and just see none of that light pollution we're used to in the city, you know, and it really was like you start, you you kind of tense up, you know, you get this feeling of like, this is what the caveman felt, you know, this is what the, this is what's been with us since then. That little thing in the tiny, tiny, tiny bottom of your brain that maybe is the impulse to create these kind of stories or to put words to these feelings and to create, you know, mythologies around it. And uh, like, it starts with that sense of like, either it's vulnerability, or it's uh, maybe it's all this together, like being vulnerable and realizing how small you are and realizing how I've always thought very, very much about Let's say you're walking out in the woods with a flashlight. You're the most trackable thing in the world. Like anything that lurks in the shadows knows you're there, but you don't know it's there. And I think that that feeling, when you have that feeling of like something, whether it's uh, malevolent goats that are lurking a few feet away, you're in a moment of like, what's going on here? I'm, You know, I don't feel like this is my element exactly. I mean, I go back to those... Uh, uh, Algernon Blackwood stories that attempt to sort of make the spirit of nature, the kind of greater evil or, you know, you know, pan or whatever that I do understand. I know some people will say, well, this is silly. I love nature. It's not scary. And it's like, I know what these writers are talking about, though. It's a sense of smallness. It's a sense of you've wandered into something and you couldn't, you're a speck you know, that compared to this, this thing that stretches back. And uh, as much as I love the outdoors, I can totally tap into that feeling. I've spent some time in, uh, in, in that region and, and like, you know, I have a cousin that lives in black mountain. So I know I, it's, it's beautiful terrain, but it's also like, there's some deep, dark hollows and it's hard not to, I'm sure being around that stuff. If you've got this writer's mind, it, you know, you start to imagine like, well, okay, what predates man, what, what's been here longer than we have? What, what has a, what has a right, Uh, to question our dominance of of things
1: we shelter ourselves that kind of thing and it's not so much that questions our dominance is it just our the the, our own idea of dominance you know is a joke this this thing uh you know this this thing is such a weak word but whatever was here before us and whatever whatever is going to definitely be here after us you know this uh i'm not even sure what word to use it i think about it for a while uh but yeah I'm, i'm essentially agreeing with everything you just said. Uh, it's 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 uh it's primordial, it's frightening and uh exhilarating at the same time.
0: And the flip side of of being cosmically freaked out like that would be a question of uh what scares you on a more personal level. And do you find yourself utilizing that for your work? No, I do. Um
1: <clears throat> more in the first book than in the second book. The second book, yeah, as we said before, is more like a conscious decision to play you know, play with the tropes. A little bit more, but uh, mental illness, profound sadness, uh, this unanswerable sadness that some people have—that's the thing that gets me in the gut uh, more than anything else. The idea of an identity dissolving and being aware of it—that sort of thing—I think is the thing. That's the true horror to me. You know, I don't mind growing older. I don't mind getting gray. Uh, in in almost every aspect, I like life more. The older I get, uh, the one thing though. It is a true terror to me is the idea of uh losing my self awareness, you know, losing my memory. To me, that's 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 absolutely horrifying. You know, throughout my life, I've known and loved uh many people who have dealt with mental illness, and just seeing that struggle, being part of that struggle is uh is is very very scary. Yeah, I think that's it. You know, I you know, the, the sound to me, the worst sound in the world is a sound of someone in another room uh crying. That's the The epitome of awfulness to
0: me you're putting me in mind of, of another one of your most powerful stories in my opinion we've referred to it already the good husband uh which tells the story of a man and a woman where the 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 woman is depressed and she has attempted to end her life several times and her husband is you know wanting to be hopeful uh but he's been through this cycle with her a few times and he's kind of losing perspective on what's really going on and and she is is trying her best, but, you know, depression is bigger than you, and nothing can really be done to fix this situation. And, and he finds her in the midst of a suicide attempt, seemingly very close to dead, and he uh, chooses not to intervene. He rationalizes in that moment um, that he is doing the right thing or doing the least complicated thing um, or, in a way, letting her have what she wants, you know. And it's horrifying. And then complications ensue when the next day she gets up. It's not like she didn't die. She seems to have died, but she doesn't really remember it or know what that means. But what she does remember is that whatever happened to her, he, he had a chance to stop it and he didn't try. And I mean, I mean, God, it's a heartbreaking situation, and you deal with it both on the level of kind of a supernatural, almost like a gross-out story of what's really happening to this person who is not a traditional zombie, but there is something missing from her. Um, and this other person who is so racked by guilt at this point that he would do anything uh, for her, but he can't help but reflect on that moment of moral cowardice, of of extreme moral cowardice. Uh, uh and and uh you know doing something unforgivable just because he was sort of worn out
1: that's exactly what that character does that character uh in the story uh it you know uh, rationalizes his choice the the true um reason he made that choice was he was emotionally exhausted he had nothing left in his gas tank yeah um, and and you and he was able to rationalize it as an act of kindness, and I, you know, and and I think both things, from a certain perspective, are defensible. Uh, and yeah, and then there's this terrible guilt that follows.
0: God, rationalizing—I'm—I'm I'm almost too good at it. I I, I I deliberately don't let myself make a big decision whether it's a paint color for a wall or like even a bigger, you know, more personal one, I try to come up with reasons so that if things go wrong, I can remember what my reasons were where I'm like, okay, at least remember you thought this through. You didn't go off half cock. So if you're if you're damning anything right now, you know, you know that you you tried to make a, a reasonable decision. So to me, when people who are trying to be rational when it fails them, again, I think that's another thing that might be at the essence of horror is that rationality does not Come into play you know but it's also the scariest thing in life is when you you don't know if you're making a decision right now that seems innocuous that indirectly is going to lead to some horrific thing happening to you or someone you love you know especially with a parent you make so many choices as a parent that you go god boy I mean, I hope the worst case scenario is this a therapist is hearing about this one day because that's not so bad, you know, <laughs> but if it's, yeah. you know, if I'm producing real issues or if I'm setting someone up for failure in some way by virtue of my influence or my choices I've made for them. I mean, talk about regret. I think that would be, you know, you have a lot of parenting stuff in your story. So that must be that sense of that's a tenuous, tender place to be as a human is is responsible for someone's well-being.
1: Yeah, absolutely. It's so uh, th- I think I think that's probably the one of the themes of the first book and that was not intentional it's one of those things that i didn't realize until later on but the parent parent child relationship is uh it's it's the most it's the most emotionally intense relationship i've experienced you know both ways and uh i agree it's like you know the, the notion or the idea that uh you know the choices that i make are going to have well, the, the reality that the choices I make as a parent are going to have ramifications, uh, you know, in my daughter's life for the rest of her life. Sometimes it's just paralyzing. We all grow up with certain resentments in the way our parents chose to do things. And we tell we tell ourselves, at least uh, I say we, this is my experience. I tell myself, well, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to do things this way. and uh, And I think that's probably pretty universal. And so then you do things that way. And then at some point you realize that what you're doing is correcting that mistake. But you're making different ones, and so your your kids gonna grow up and say, "Well, he fucked that up." Oh, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm sure I'm not allowed to say that. I don't fucking care. And uh, and so then she's gonna correct in a different way, and then we just pass on different mistakes, or maybe the same. Just iterations of the same mistake. I don't know. Mm-hmm. But it's uh, it's it's uh, it's overwhelming to think about.
0: I'm feeling pre guilty about the notion that I won't be there one day. For my son i mean and that feels like a notion right out of one of your stories in a way of like a person because that is a little bit of a mystical fear you're thinking about what happens after you die but it's much more about like what is this person going to do when it's just a shitty afternoon one day and they could use me they could use my voice you know exactly and I won't be there, you know, that is an existential fear that I think is really is cuts really deep for me. But it goes into that kind of I feel regret over something that's not even my choice, really. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, unless if, if it's heart disease that gets me, then I did choose to eat all those donuts and eat all that pizza. But outside of that, <laughs> I haven't made too many reckless yeah, yeah. choices in my life. Another character that I find kind of sadly identifiable is Will in The Visible Filth, because he's so often it's almost like he thinks of himself as a better guy than he is but he also is kind of in a stasis that he doesn't seem to recognize is not anybody's fault, but his own, but he's not, he's not really struggling. He's not kicking around that much. He's just kind of sitting there, but there's this moment where he, you know, he breaks up with his girlfriend and he does it in that kind of self-pitying way. That seems like it's destined to bring about like this huge back and forth. And in the movie wounds, I think the actors handled the scene brilliantly and the way it was written. It's very faithful to the way you wrote it. I think we should break up. I don't think this is working.
2: Okay. sorry you got? Okay? Why are you acting offended? You're breaking up with me. I can't believe how calmly you're taking this whole thing. I guess you can probably find a place to crash while you look for a new apartment, right? Already? Today? Well, what did you expect? That we cuddle? Fuck you. I'm sorry. Do you hear yourself? You're scared. I'm scared, too. But I would never abandon you to it. That's what I'm saying. Fuck you. I wasn't mad until just now. I was disappointed. I was hurt. But now I'm just fucking pissed. So if that's what you wanted, then you got it. It's not what I wanted. You know what I think you want? Nothing. Because there's nothing there to satisfy. You are a mock person.
0: I mean, just the way the air in the room changes, you know, uh, and she completely takes control of the situation, and 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 you know goes from being hurt to being legitimately angry, and you know it's like he he lost so much in just that moment of 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 you know thinking he was being the stoic. Uh, male uh, hero, and actually just kind of being a dumbass. And I don't know, th- there was something about that. the kind of randomness and and um, unexpectedness of that turnabout. I was just wondering, does that have any relation to anything you've ever experienced? that That
1: did not come from a uh, a personal exchange, but uh, but the 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 you know, I certainly have the characteristic I think many of us do. I know I do. the characteristic uh, in which we were talking about rationalization in which you kind of rationalize your actions when you think of yourself as a better person than you are, when you give yourself every excuse uh, when things are going wrong. So, well, it must be because of this. It can't be because of what I did or what I said. And, uh, with that story, you know, at no point is the world the way he thinks and assumes it is, you know, he makes all kinds of false assumptions. And that was kind of like the, uh, the heart of that story, you know, just the, uh, the kind of the self delusion that we engage in the hypocrisy that we engage in, in order to live with ourselves, you know? And, uh, and yeah, he was utterly in stasis is the exact word way to put it. And because it was such a, a, uh, it was almost like a drug addiction. And this, this is easy. I saw this a lot in New Orleans and, and, uh, became susceptible to it myself. I think where the, uh, immediate circumstances of your life, uh, are, are kind of pleasant. And so, especially in bar culture I th- that felt like a
0: well-observed uh, part of that story
1: uh, well I'm, I'm glad uh, yeah I did it for like uh, 10 12 years uh, you're making good money because uh, if you're lucky enough to work in a, in a in a popular bar which I was and you don't go anywhere you don't do anything you don't use your brain you don't think your ambitions kind of fall by the wayside and you just kind of live in this world uh, and that's the world that he was living in and uh, and he was unable to recognize his own Grievous flaws. And yeah, there's a certain level of, uh, of self-examination of that character, for sure, because I know I've been guilty of that kind of thing and probably still am, <laughs> you know, in ways I have not yet recognized.
0: Right. Yeah. In 20 years, you'll be writing about that. Yeah.
1: What a jackass I was.
0: Yeah. That's a funny thing about Will, because, again, if this was a more traditional sort of story, he would be the kind of lantern-jawed character, but he, he kind of falls short of that at every turn. And I had not thought necessarily about that aspect that you're talking about, of you sort of have a a life you enjoy. And I thought, again, in the film, Army Hammer did a pretty good job of playing those early scenes where he's kind of in his element and he's kind of smug. And you can kind of see that he's a little, maybe he's aging out of this lifestyle, but he's also, he's got friends. He's got this woman that he flirts with. He's got this beautiful girlfriend. He's kind of the master of this place, you know? Everybody knows him. So it is is an interesting thing to say like, oh, here's a guy who seems pretty self-actualized. And he's really not. Mm -hmm. Did you enjoy the way that that movie came together? Was "Wounds" something that you felt kind of nailed what you were going after in the story?
1: I think uh, the movie complements the story uh, pretty well. I think they work uh, best uh, in conjunction with each other. It was a lot of fun, very satisfying to see it come together. To uh, talk with uh, with uh, Babak as he was writing it, and it helped me uh, realize some areas in the in the initial publication novella that were a bit weak. So the, the version that exists in the book "Wounds." Is slightly altered, not much, but very slightly altered from the initial, you know, uh, standalone publication. Right, it was published separately as its own, its own thing. Yeah, is a kind of like like a like a like a chapbook,
2: mm-hmm.
1: and going over some of the uh, the occult aspects that they brushed up against, uh, it made me realize I needed to put a little bit more into the story. I was trying to leave it vague, uh, and it's for some people it's still a little too vague, and I get the frustration with that because. It doesn't answer a lot of questions. He brushes up. It's again another another example of somebody brushing up against something uh, supernatural uh, or numinous in some way, uh, and he never gets what it is. You know, uh, I, I I was thinking about what if there was something like Necronomicon or some kind of like magical occult book uh, that actually worked, and if you just kind of skirt the out outside of it, and it affects your life. You're never going to get the answers to it. You're never going to know what it was really about. Uh, and he doesn't, which is reflective of, of the circumstances of his actual life. He doesn't get what the reality is around him. He only understands his perception of it. So the movie made that a little more clear to me that I needed to make that a little more clear in the novella. And, uh, I think I'm actually a little more explicit in the story than, uh, than, than the film is in the story. It's an actual, an angel is being hatched out of someone's head. And, uh, Babak chose to go uh, in a more uh, the way I initially did in a, in a in a more abstract direction. But I guess you know to answer your question, I think yeah, I am I'm very satisfied with it. I'm glad that he was uh, he resisted the impulse to be explicit in what was happening, and uh, and I think that the two complement each other very well.
0: And how did that compare to your experience uh, developing uh, North American Lake Monsters for Hulu with Mary Laws? Uh, uh, did you have much involvement
1: with that process a good bit of involvement um and uh, it was i mean they were very generous and in, in, in inviting me to be part of that process mary laws is the showrunner head writer and uh, and it was important to her throughout which she mentioned often to keep true to that 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 core aesthetic the kind of thing you were talking about where they're real-world concerns and the supernatural kind of uh, uh, play of each other. But they invited me uh, to the writer's room for the first two weeks that they had it, in which they talked about all the stories in the book. We talked through uh, what they were about, what they meant, what the motivation of the characters were, etc., and then I got to sit in and participate in the in the pitch sessions where we came. They came up with the uh, the new stories, the ones that were that were generated in the room, not coming from the book. And so it was exciting to be a part of. It was really kind of gratifying to see how everybody locked onto the core theme of the book and wanted to translate that to the stories, even the new ones. Yeah, it was really special. I've never been in a writer's room before, and it was a, a, a kind of a very kinetic, freewheeling and. Uh, even egoless environment, at least for those first two weeks.
0: It always sounds so fun. Whenever I hear people talk about writer's room experiences, it sounds like, I mean, I I love that part of being creative i love hashing stuff out like i'm guilty in fact of some ideas of mine haven't proceeded because i've had so much fun talking about them with people <laughs> over yeah. the years and i've <laughs> kind of learned if you want something to move don't talk about it you know but the writer's room sounds like it's the perfect mixture of oh wow work is being done but we're also in the world of ideas yeah. it sounds like a blast it was very exciting
1: and it was uh you know in in, in you get around it seems to me anyway it seemed to me at the time uh, and maybe this is true that you get around the, uh, uh, you know, the risks of uh, of writer's block, because if you can't think something through. You've got a whole group of people around the table who are as equally invested in in helping get the story to be the best shape that it can be. And so you just bounce the idea out and, and, and it'll get resolved. And then, yeah, I have that same issue where if I talk about something too much, I kind of lose my steam. And the advantage there is. You've got a rigorous schedule and you've got a showrunner who's uh, at the helm and uh, you're not going to be, you're not going to be sitting on your, on your butt. You're going to be, you're going to have to move and have to write. I, I don't know if they're all like that, but that one was terrific.
0: Um, Kind of an odd question, but um, I found like th- there, there are episodes that seem like they spin out of your stories, like the story S.S., Mm -hmm. seems to be the seed behind one of the episodes, which is a character who lives with his mother. I mean, I won't go much further than that, I guess. I don't want to spoil the show, but it's different. It uses some things, but not all of them. And I was wondering if there are to be more episodes or if there ever would be more adaptations spun from this batch of material, does that mean SS turned into that? Or does that mean SS, the story is still, and this is the case with a few of the other episodes as well. So I mean, this is something that happened across the season of the show, where yeah. I would I would sense your story, and then I would be able to tell within a few minutes, this doesn't feel like it's it's adapting. The story but it did use elements from it i mean i don't know are, are there going to be more episodes does that mean those stories might be adapted later or i mean what's your sense of that of like material from the book that wasn't used in this first season is it is it still out there or it, have you talked about it with them um so are there going to be more episodes
1: uh that is i think up to who at this point we will i hope that there are more i hope we get renewed uh we'll see um yeah i hope i'm very nervous about how it's going to be received uh only because well who wouldn't be (laughs) so i hope that we get renewed i hope we get a chance to do more uh and i can't speak to what would what would be uh translated uh if there is a second season that's going to be uh mary law's decision uh ultimately but uh, the question of whether or not we would see a different iteration of SS, I don't think so. I think if they were going to take more from this book, they would take the other stories, um, some of the other stories. It's quite possible that if they get renewed, they'll do all eight original ones.
0: There's just one element of SS that is so horrific and gross that I, I, I'm i surprised they were able to resist uh, having the mother slowly eating herself. <laughs> that was so, as that as what was happening there revealed itself. That's one of the ickiest things you've you've written about, honestly, it's so gross. And he wonders what she's gonna do when she runs out of legs. And it hints at something darker. She's got, at least in her mind, some are, some darker mythology behind what's going on than what's happening. But then what he's coming into contact with, the racism and what he's prepared to go do, to me, that story was one of the more horrifying ones for a number of reasons, because it does feel like a character who's in it, at best, in a nightmare. He's living in, you know, he's, his life is a nightmare. And he, he doesn't seem equipped to make decisions that would make it better, you know? Um, so to me, I found that one really compelling.
1: I'm glad. That was the, yeah, that was the idea. The idea of like what circumstance could somebody find himself in and where this hideous invitation from a nationalist group would seem like uh, a lifeline.
0: Well, if that story never gets adapted again, I'll always have the the awesomely creepy movie that I made in my head when I was reading. yeah yeah, it. but i I really respect your openness to uh, having your work reinterpreted. Uh, it it seems like you're you're totally interested in in just seeing what other people might do with it
1: uh, and yeah, it's uh, it's it's genuine. I really I really I really do like seeing what other people do and I don't have any you know precious feelings about it you know it's 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 out there
0: it's fun to see them work on it and do something different our mutual friend uh polly Chatel, who uh has just published her first novel the occultists yeah, yeah. which by the way if anybody out there listening hasn't hasn't read this you really need to check it out it's a it's a great dark adventure story with these dueling secret societies and it's a cool period piece very well-researched. But but she has, for years, been a filmmaker before before also becoming a novelist mm-hmm. and had said that the difficulty of getting a film project together and the budget and all that stuff versus sitting down at the typewriter to write, that writing is hard, but that at least you are the, the auteur with no budget. Yeah. So in that sense, Nathan, you've already gotten to make the coolest, most unfettered version of all these stories.
1: And what a privilege for this to happen. You know, how how lucky to be someone whose, whose, whose work is being translated this way. It would be it would be, you know, the height of, uh, of ungratefulness and churlishness to, to suddenly, you know, complain about, about anything like that.
0: It's, it's just, it's just great, good fortune. And I'm, I'm lucky and I'm, I'm aware of it. Well, that certainly beats the hell out of being unlucky and not knowing. (laughs) All right. I'll leave you with one last question. I'm sure you get asked this a lot, but I, I would be remiss if I did not find out what are you reading or what are you excited to read right now?
1: Well, it's funny. I do have Pauly's, uh novel, The Occultists, uh, on, the te- on the bedside table. I haven't opened it yet, but it's, uh, it's about third down on my list. Mm-hmm. Right now, I'm reading a book, a uh, crime novel by Liz Hand, Elizabeth Hand, called uh, The Book of Lamps and Banners. Okay. Uh, and uh, and Adam Neville's new book of short stories uh, called Weird, W Y R D, which is oh, wow. I think just a uh, very slim, unusual, creepy volume. Uh, having a great time with that.
0: I have uh, read just a few of his novels uh, in the last several months during during COVID, during quarantine. I, I've, I, I haven't, i have I'm not a fast reader, but I've been steady with it. I've read about 12 books uh, since since we started socially distancing. But I, it came because I, I, I started respecting the stack. I took books I just bought or books that I had been sitting around with for a long time and I kind of put them into a pecking order and I just w- started working through it. And yeah, about 12 books now. Um, and I've been having a blast reading a lot of, a lot of good horror stuff, especially, uh, do you respect the stack?
1: Yeah. I'm not a fast reader either. Um, I don't really respect the stack to be, to be quite frank. Uh, I'll put it up there and sometimes I'll just, uh, yeah, I I really go by, by whim. I'm left on my own devices. It's like, do I just feel like reading right now. Um, so the stack is probably, you know, it's a, it doesn't actually exist. It's a metaphorical stack. But, uh, but yeah, there's there's there's
0: like 100 books that I can't wait to read. Well, I know what I can't wait to read. What's the name of the book uh, that's coming soon-ish about uh, the girl on Mars in the 30s? It's called The Strange. Is it too soon to say when I can add it to my stack? Uh,
1: at this point, I think it's a little too early to say. We're talking about uh, board dates, and it actually looks like it might be as far away as january or february of 2022 but we're
0: not it hasn't been confirmed yet well i'm officially impatient for it already but i, I do want to say for now uh, this has been a lot of fun and thanks for the thanks for the talk it was good i really enjoyed it thanks nathan take care you too all eight episodes of monsterland's first season are up on hulu as of october 2nd for what could be The most disquieting binge experience you've ever had. And Nathan, the man, you can find him on Twitter at nballingrud. That's N-B-A-L-L-I-N-G-R-U-D. And I just realized I don't know if I'm pronouncing it right, and I'm very sorry if I'm not, Nathan. As for me, I'm on Twitter and Instagram at Gianni W-G-I-A-N-N-I-D-U-B-Y-A. And really excited about this. My music is on Bandcamp. You can find a brand new album. It's just a couple weeks old at sci-fi.bandcamp.com. Um, That's S-I-G-H-F-I-G-H dot Bandcamp dot com. The name of the album is Recent Patterns of Demonstrative Behavior. And if you're happening to hear this right when this episode comes out, October 2nd is a uh, day where Bandcamp gives the artists all the money. That gets spent on their music. So if you want me to uh, g- get a little cheddar without uh, having to give uh, Bandcamp a cut, uh, October second is is a great day to do it. But any day is a great day to go to Bandcamp and support independent artists by buying their music. Said the independent artist. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll see you next week for another episode of Skiert. I think we got to get out of here.